And then Y Combinator did everyone the favor of inventing something called SAFE, um, which was not a favor to anyone because SAFE is little better than a whispered promise behind a barn door that maybe one day uh, you're going to get something. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales, marketing, and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus on the first way, only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is Peter Dolch. Peter is the president and co-founder of Thaumaturgics, Inc., uh, known as TGIX for short with more than 25 years of experience in launching and managing technology-based startups. TGIX was twice ranked in the Inc. 500 fastest-growing private companies list. He's also currently the managing partner at TGIX, the CTO of Biospectral SA, a Swiss-based med tech startup, and the managing partner of Eon Foundry, a New York City-based fund investing in and mentoring early-stage startups. And I've known Peter for, wow, I mean, over 20 years and uh, I've seen him grow his uh, his core business and move into some of these other businesses. So it's super, uh, you know, exciting for me uh, to have you on the show, Peter. Thanks, Corey. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. That's great. So uh, listen, before we jump into uh, the companies you're running and the investing that you're doing and the kind of deals that you've done, I want to take you back uh, to when you were a little kid. And I'm curious to uh, hear what you wanted to be growing up, because my guess is and maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, maybe a technology company, you know, a founder and CEO and investor might not have been on your mind when you were six or eight or 10 or 12. You know, Corey, I have an ear splitting grin on my face because I haven't thought about this in decades, but I absolutely wanted to be an author as a kid. I have such clear memories of thinking that was going to be my life. Wow. And, and, and at, at, that, at that young age, did you have uh, any particular genre or type of books you, th- you thought you'd write? You know, I'm a, I'm a techno geek. I was uh, a big sci-fi fan. I think I had the largest sci-fi lending library uh, in my uh, high school. Oh, I love it. I love it. So um, is that something that just came back to you, or do you still have any, like, uh, lingering desires to, uh, to do some writing? I actually have an Evernote in which I keep ideas uh, about things like screenplays and book ideas and such. But, uh, I don't know, raising two kids, running a couple of companies – having a life. Writing seems like it would require uh, an extra life to just do that. I, listen, as, as somebody who wrote a book a couple of years ago, uh, trust me, it's, uh, yeah, it is a project and it takes a dedicated time. So, uh, but, uh, but who knows? Uh, so that's, that's interesting. So um, what would you consider to be your first real business? However you define that. So the, uh, wow, the theme is fantastic here because the summer I, uh, did not go to camp when I was 16. My plan was to start writing my first book, and my father told me I had to make money instead. And so I started a car detailing business that summer, uh, in which I would go to the local country clubs, find people with fancy cars that were dirty, convince them to let me drive them home, spend two, three, four hours detailing them, and then drive them back. Oh, that's that, that's exciting. So did you, did you just do that business for that one summer, or did you do it? That was a one-summer business. I love it. I love it. 
I love, you know, especially with my entrepreneurial, you know, friends and colleagues and clients, I, I love hearing, you know, uh, about their first businesses and sort of their origin stories because they're always interesting. Right. Um, so let's let's bring it up to, to the present now. So, you know, you run several companies. Uh, TGIX is the one that you've had for, for 25 years. And then, you know, there's some newer things you're doing uh, in terms of investing through Eon Foundry and your relationship with uh, Biospectral. So, you know, give the audience a little bit of color on uh, what those things are and uh, what they do and what you're involved with. Sure. Just to keep it quick, 25 years ago, myself and two co-founders uh, started a, a boutique software development and infrastructure company, um, which we've been running continuously for that period of time. But during those 25 years, um, while we've worked with a lot of large global enterprises, we had the good fortune to work with 50 or so startups. Um, a couple of which we actually incubated in our offices, uh, one of which came to us with an idea on a napkin, and we helped them with all their iterations of technology through their IPO. And it was really working with startups that, uh, that's that been the most exciting kind of work I've done um, in the last 25 years. So last year, I decided to take a step back from uh, active engagement of large client projects and focus more on uh, being involved with early-stage startups. So that was the genesis of my uh, Eon Foundry Fund. Um, so I got more involved with the local early stage uh, entrepreneurial networking scene. I've uh, been meeting a lot of early stage entrepreneurs. Some of them I'm mentoring. Some of them uh, I've been working with strategy, helping them with operations, um, and a small number of which I'm taking an active role. So Biospectral is one in which I have been their CTO for most of the last year. Um, helping them build their underlying and technology infrastructure and working on their uh, development strategy. So, so let's, uh, let's go back and then sort of roll it forward because, uh, you know, with the companies that you were working with and incubating and uh, with uh, TGIX over the years, uh, I happen to remember a deal that, you know, we worked together on that helped John where, you know, you had an equity piece in, in a, in a, in a significant, you know, relatively significant, what became a relatively significant company. Um, so uh, t- talk to me about those, you know, what were those relationships over the years, the different types of deals you did? Uh, you know, what did you get in exchange for the incubation? I know in some cases it was equity. And then, you know, roll it up to the present uh, with what kind of structures and deals you're doing uh, with the on uh, Foundry. Sure. The successful uh, incubation deals that we had over the years with uh, with early stage startups through my consulting company did involve taking an equity component. And typically we would provide uh, either discounted or free technology development strategy, infrastructure office services to help them, uh, you know, get on their feet, get their core product built, get them into a marketplace and, and get enough funds raised so that they could, they could get their own offices and, and kind of fly, fly free on their own. And in fact, the deal I think you're referring to is uh, cheetah mail if we're allowed to say names because that company's been sold and it's, that, that deal's done a long time ago. That was, that was very successful. We, we saw them uh, through their, uh, you know, they had an idea and we saw them all the way through their $36 million exit, which was a pretty good deal. Um, and uh, that was an exciting project, actually. I named that company, so I'm, I'm going to take those kudos. Oh, that's that's great. I, I didn't uh, I didn't remember that. That's awesome. It's it's rare for the, it's rare for the technology consultant to do the actual branding. <laughs> and listen, obviously it works. So that's uh, so it's great. Um, so so talk to me, you know, before we move into what you're doing now. Uh, so uh, you know, basically, you know, those were services or you know either full or, or discounted, uh, you know, rates. Uh, I mean, or you know, free or discounted rates in exchange for equity. Uh, and talk to uh, the audience about, you know, who may be thinking about those kind of deals, because listen, we all know 
uh, almost any kind of successful business person, I get them all the time, get approached, gets approached all the time with early stage companies to do work for equity. And um, I have many, many examples uh, where people have chosen to do that and has not paid off. Uh, so, uh, you know, how, how did you evaluate which companies you were willing to do that with? Uh, where did you make some mistakes? Where were you right? Uh, and then, you know, how did you, uh, you know, how did you structure those kind of deals to put you in the best position to have them be lucrative? Sure. And I think actually the answer to that answers a broader question, which anyone running any kind of consultative professional services organization has wrestled with, uh, which is, you know, how do you monetize any spare capacity you have? Um, you know, it's one thing if you're a venture backed startup and you have uh, a lot of money, there may be some corporate governance you have to pay attention to. But if you're, if you're running your own company, you're watching the bottom line. If you have an empty desk, you're paying for that real estate. Uh, if you have, uh, you know, if you're running a software development company, you have developer resources that aren't built out 100%. Uh, that's capacity that you're not monetizing. So incubating companies for us over the years really was a way to try to monetize underutilized resources. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a business line. We said we must be in this business line. Um, though we, we've done well with it. Um, so when, when these kinds of entrepreneurs came, came to us and as a boutique software development company, we, we were known to have certain specialized skills in a variety of areas and, and had worked with a lot of entrepreneurs. So people knew to come to us. Um, we tried to focus on entrepreneurs where there was a strong alignment of interest between what they were doing. Uh, and what either we could do or we could help them with. So there were, and in fact, I recently threw out a whole bunch of files. I, I scanned in a few that were interesting, but I had a giant stack of business plans that I'd been saving for over 20 years, uh, for all kinds of possible businesses. And, you know, some of them, you just, if you don't believe in the business, you can't see, you can't see how the entrepreneur is going to execute, uh, that it's really just not worth your time because even though, um, you may have some spare resources, you want to put them to good use. So, so we did, we did make sure that we believed the entrepreneurs had the skills, the talent. We believed in the business plan. And more importantly, we felt we could add value. We weren't, we, there really at the time wasn't a benefit to just, you know, having someone pay $50 a month for a desk. So we wanted to make sure that, uh, there was a strong alignment of interest between, uh, what the entrepreneur wanted to achieve and what they needed from us and what we felt we could help them with and what we could, what we could give. Great. So on, uh, you know, listen, Cheetah Mail was one of the examples of, uh, of, of deals. It's not your only one that went really well. Um, but uh, my guess is you had some that didn't pay off. And uh, what were the lessons that learned from the, that you learned from the ones that uh, didn't end up working? Um, it's hard to draw broad lessons because at the end of the day, uh, I think the statistics are pretty poor on entrepreneurial startups succeeding. Right. Um, and for instance, we had, businesses that we thought were going to be tremendously successful. There was a talented team. They were first to market. And then Kleiner Perkins decides to do something very similar, put $100 million behind it. And it doesn't really matter how great your team is and how great your entrepreneur is and how good a job they're doing and how fantastic the technology you've built happens to be. Kleiner Perkins is going to put you out of business pretty fast if they want to. Right. So there's a lot of externalities you can't control. And you have to uh, – maybe a lottery ticket is a strong word because it's not – it's not that much of a gamble if you're at least paying some attention to it and you're, you're being choosy about what you pick. Um, but you have to accept that if you're going to get involved in the early stage entrepreneurial space, there's going to be losers uh, for reasons that are completely beyond your control that could not be foreseen and don't, don't necessarily make you a bad judge of character or businesses. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And listen, the statistics on, you know, there was a, a study that uh, we had a, 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 well, I wish I remember his name because I'd love to give him credit, but he's a professor at, I think it was the London School of Economics that spoke at one of our entrepreneurs' organization events uh, several years back. 
And he did an entire study actually on venture funds and the percentage of venture funds. Uh, I'm not talking about individual investments. I'm talking about venture funds that um, outperformed the, uh, the S&P. And, and there were only three out of 10 that outperformed and really only one out of 10 that significantly outperformed uh, in terms of funds. And then when he looked into the, the actual one that was super successful, only about one in 10 of their investments really paid off huge. So if you look at those odds, they're, uh, you know, they're pretty low. So, you know, to have uh, the track record that you, you know, that you've had, we've had several that have made sense is really, uh, is really actually great considering. Actually, from, from my experience, or at least observations in this space, the funds are at a little bit of a disadvantage yep. because they, they actually have to deploy their capital. Right. So, so they're in a position where uh, they, they sometimes can't be as choosy as their thesis would lead you to believe because they just can't sit on capital for 15 years. So they're in somewhat of a bind in terms of having to deploy it and uh, perhaps not being as choosy as one could be if one was just deploying one's own money in the space. So, so let's jump ahead then, and we can always, you know, go back a little bit as well. But so now you have Eon Foundry, and uh, you know you've. Uh, so talk to me about that. Is that have you raised outside capital on that? Uh, is that your own money? So, so I have. It's out. It's outside capital. It's a small fund to start with. I, just very challenging without a fund track record to to go straight to the fifty million dollar level. Um, uh, but I have a good enough track record having worked with large number of startups from the technology side and uh, and some of the successes to have at least convinced some people that it was worth uh, taking a bet on me. So it's been, it's been very exciting. I've really enjoyed this work. It's uh, working with meeting entrepreneurs, being involved in the, in the New York City uh, entrepreneurial scene, uh, getting reengaged with a lot of the angel groups I've known, um, even getting reengaged with uh, uh, my alma mater, MIT. They have a they have a MIT alumni uh, venture community. Uh, entrepreneurship is really big at MIT these days, so I've been tied into that. And it's, I've met some just tremendously talented and interesting entrepreneurs doing amazing things in the last year. So, talk a little bit about um, two, two things I want to ask you. So, let's take one at a time. Uh, so, you mentioned you know the challenges that big VC, VC firms have, and you know they need to deploy capital, and you see that all the time, right? And it's uh, you know often they despite the fact that they claim otherwise, they'll move away from, you know, what I look at as the oldest discipline, right? Um, so, you know, obviously with a smaller fund in the beginning, at least it's a little easier because you're not, you know, you don't have huge amounts of capital to deploy, you know, but at the same time, uh, you are managing other people's money and they have expectations and they don't want it sitting idle forever and they're looking for a return. So, uh, you know, as this thing grows over time, how, uh, how are you going to address the competing concerns of expectations of returns, you know, from investors and having capital deployed versus making good business decisions. I think your point is is great. The the discipline is required to stick to your thesis. Um, uh, you know, there's there's two competing problems when you are making these decisions, and FOMO is actually the harder uh, the harder thing to fight than the the opposite, which is which is the discipline you need to have. Yeah. So. Um, I find if you, the longer you spend with an entrepreneur, the more careful you have to be about being disciplined, being skeptical, and not finding yourself in a position where you've, you've drank their Kool-Aid and uh, you believe everything they say. So I don't know how other uh, investors do it. I have a very strong uh, sense of fiduciary responsibility to the people who give me money. So, and I talk to my limited partners about deals on a regular basis. I get their opinion as well. They, they have uh, tremendous uh, history and background uh, in industry and have 
good ideas for smart people. So I've had deals that they've felt were not good and they've given me some good advice. Um, and they've had, I've had deals where they've wanted me to double down. They're like, oh, put in more money to that one. We like that one. So, um, you know, I'm not uh, afraid to talk to my uh, limited partners, get, get their feedback. Um, the angel groups I'm part of uh, also gives me the ability to, to group think might be the wrong word, but at least um, get other opinions, see other viewpoints, and be able to tap into the skills of people with different experiences and different verticals to get a more rounded view of a deal. Uh, so I think I'm being very methodical uh, about how I choose potential investments. Uh, and then I'm fairly diligent on the due diligence. And, you know, if things don't look right, if things don't smell right, um, I'm, I'm much more willing to say no than uh, to say yes. That's great. Uh, so talk, you talked about these uh, these angel groups, uh, and you mentioned a couple of them. So for our uh, listeners who are less familiar with uh, some of these uh, angel groups out there, can you give a little more detail on, uh, you know, what they do and uh, who some of them are? And, you know, you already said there's an advantage of having sort of people who are doing the same thing and you can bounce some things off of them. But, you know, what are these angel groups? So there's numerous ways uh, entrepreneurs can go out and get investment. There's accelerators, there's incubators, uh, there are pitch events that are run by angels, angel groups, uh, alumni groups, all kinds of fintech accelerators, insurtech accelerators, medtech accelerators. Uh, There's probably several dozen pitch events going on uh, every week in Manhattan. Uh, So you kind of have to pick and choose what verticals you want to work on and where you think uh, the best deal flow will fit your investment strategy. So for me, um, I know I want to be able to rely upon other people to help with due diligence and have uh, have more skeptics in the room. So I joined a group called New York Angels, which is uh, one of the larger angel groups in New York City. Um, they manage uh, fairly rigorously uh, curated deal flow to the angel members and uh, entrepreneurs that come through that we like. We then have a rigorous process for discovery, for due diligence. Um, and then eventually, if the company passes through all the various stages, uh, we can then present that uh, entrepreneur to the broader angel community, New York angel community, uh, to see who would like to invest. Each of the angels invests individually, so there's no fund that we're managing, um, though we do have funds that you can invest in that will kind of follow the lead. So if a large enough number of angels do make an investment, that fund will, will follow on. Um, other angel groups I mentioned were New York, were MIT alumni angels, which is a uh, group of MIT alumni that curates deal flow, uh, typically coming, coming from Boston. Uh, MIT itself has a fairly large entrepreneurship center. They have something called the Delta B Accelerator that feeds deals into New York as well. Um, and I'm a member of a number of fintech and suretech and medtech groups, uh, some of which I go to uh, entrepreneurial events with. Um, I've been very interested in blockchain since inception. But I have no investments in blockchain, um, so I've been paying attention to that area. Um, that's that's pretty much a good roundup of, of where I'm getting my deal flow from. That's great, and and you know what what that uh, there's a number of things that those groups do. Uh, obviously, there are other smart people in the room, and they help evaluate. Deals, and then you know, like you said, I mean, basically, most uh, companies that are funded are funded by uh, multiple, you know, people, right? Or funds, or angels, etc. You know, um, you know, anything that's certainly uh, more than a very small deal, you usually have multiple investors in it. So, um, you know, are you? Uh, so, uh, are there other people that you, uh, you know, that are lead investors in these deals, and you're putting in some money, or are you looking to be the lead, or are you do some of both? Well, that that's what's important, unless you're going to be. The- deploying large amounts of capital yourself and leading deals. Being part of a group um, 
that has the ability to pool money uh, and act as a deal lead makes a fairly big difference in uh, your ability to invest. Because, uh, for instance, with New York Angels, uh, if we have enough interested angels and we are, um, as a group, uh, providing a significant amount of capital to an entrepreneur, we can control the deal terms, which is hugely advantageous. So if you're an individual angel, friends and family, uh, if you're running a small fund yourself, you are probably following on deals and you're getting whatever terms that the lead investor um, negotiated. And it's possible, lead investi- the, it's possible that the lead investor didn't negotiate the best possible deal. This happens all the time. We'll, we'll come into a deal. They have a, a lead investor already. Um, and it's a capped note with terrible terms. We have no idea why a lead investor offered these terms. Um, we'll try to put together maybe a bigger pot of money so we can get the terms to be better. Or maybe we won't invest because the, the terms have already been, been negotiated in a way that's not favorable to the investors. So being part of a larger group helps you uh, improve the deal terms and, and end up with a much better deal. So let's talk a little bit about uh, these deal terms. You, know, you mentioned the concept of a capped note, and there are you know, debt deals, there are convertible debt deals, there are equity deals, there's all kinds of classes of equity that you might you know, get, preferred, et cetera, with different preferences. Uh, so talk to me about what you're seeing in terms of how, uh, you know, the, uh, the various ways these deals are being structured these days. Sure. And then it's be best, obviously, to maybe read a book on this because the industry has dramatically shifted over the last uh, 20 years. Uh, I think there was a time when preferred equity was, was the only form of investment or the predominant form of investment um, in startups. Um, then sometime, I don't know for what time frame it happened, um, the uh, convertible note became more of a standard um, investment vehicle. And the, the reason that happened uh, is because often if an entrepreneur needed some additional financing, uh, they were very close to an inflection point, which there would be a fairly substantial uh, multiple on the valuation. They would get a, a bridge, a bridge round, to just get them over the hump. And that bridge round would be priced at some discount off of the, the next round, which was literally two or three months around the corner. It was really a bridge round. And then for some reason, the word bridge disappeared. Um, and we just now have the capped note uh, that's a discount off of the next round of investment as a standard investment vehicle. So we, we got to that point some years back. And then Y Combinator did everyone the favor of inventing something called SAFE, um, which was not a favor to anyone because SAFE is little better than a whispered promise behind a barn door that maybe one day uh, you're going to get something. It doesn't have doesn't have the advantage of a note, at least, which is debt. So you have at least some, some body of law protecting you. Um, and it certainly doesn't have the advantage of preferred equity, uh, in which you're an actual owner of the company and have additional rights. Uh, really, you just have a cross with a safe. And it's, uh, it's uh, something that no New York angel, for instance, no, no, no member of the New York angels will accept. Um, and when I counsel entrepreneurs um, about their initial fundraising strategy, I tell them, look, you, you certainly will find friends and family who don't know any better. They're going to take whatever deal terms you want. You'll find investors who are willing to accept a safe. Um, you'll find more investors that are willing to accept uh, a cap note. But what investors really want and what they deserve for an equity, um, it better aligns their interests with yours. And if you've got the right investors who have the right industry contacts and can provide the right advice and potentially help provide the right governance, uh, there's a huge benefit to those interests being aligned. And so it's, it's like if you were walking into um, uh, a car dealership and they're trying to sell you uh, a motorcycle, you're like, but, but I'm here to buy a car. And if you're trying to raise money, you should be offering what it is the investors would like, which is preferred equity. Um, 
we've been moving away from that, unfortunately, for quite some time. So you mentioned uh, the safe and you mentioned Y Combinator, which uh, for those of us who, you know, are in this uh, game, everybody knows who it is, but not all of my fueling deals listeners may know who they are. And they are a significant uh, influencer and player in the space. So just, uh, just give us a sense or two on Y Combinator so they know what you're talking about. Y Combinator is one of the biggest uh, incubators, launchers, investors in early stage startups based out on the West Coast. Um, and one of the reasons uh, for the safe, and it again follows the same trajectory um, as the other equity structure I decided, I, I described, um, doing a preferred equity deal requires a little bit more legal work than doing a note, which requires a little bit more work than a safe. A safe is a one page or less document uh, that doesn't require much legal work at all. So they, they invented this product to make it cheaper and quicker for entrepreneurs to raise money. Um, but they really did a huge service to the investor community because it's, it's the default for the average entrepreneur until they either learn otherwise because they find it challenging to raise money under a safe. Um, right. Or they claim as many, not only do entrepreneurs claim this, I think they often believe it, that their interests are aligned with their investors and they are investor friendly entrepreneurs. And the truth is what they'll find down the road is that having offered a safe to the people that took the most risk was not really being investor friendly because the safe note does not reasonably compensate uh, an early stage investor for all the risk they're taking. So that raises an interesting question that I was going to, I was thinking about before, uh, which is, uh, you know, somebody who is now on the side of, uh, you know, having a fund and having related partners, having investors who rely upon you, uh, what types of expectations do you set with your investors, right? Because, you know, I've seen situations uh, in the past, and it, it sort of comes back to uh, a little bit of what we were talking about earlier on how a lot of VC funds are, you know, uh, they're expected to deploy capital. And sometimes that brings about a deal this one. And, um, you know, various types of uh, funds or limited partnerships uh, set different expectations with their with their investors. I remember we, I did some real estate funds with a partner, and, and, and you know, we basically told people that their money is going to be locked up for up to 10 years um, because we wanted a long-term uh you know, uh, uh, leeway. Uh, so when in your fund uh, or in your, you know, a, a partnership, uh, Ian Foundry, uh, what kind of expectations do you set for your investors? I think I set similar expectations to the ones you've been setting, which is that the funds are going to be locked up for a particularly long period of time compared to other um, forms of, of um, capital. And to some degree, the longer the funds are locked up, it can be a better story because uh, if, if you're locked up in a company that's growing very fast, raising lots of capital, um, and potentially is going to have a very large exit, that large exit is not going to happen in two years. That large exit is going to happen in five, six, seven years. Um, and that's probably to everyone's advantage um, that the capital is locked up because people who are investing in, in early-stage startup funds, they're expecting to either lose all their money or have a significant return. And that's that's really the... The expectation they should have. There is probably not a likely middle ground. A lot of these investments are binary. Uh, they're either going to do very well or they're going to flame out. Um, one thing I try to do, there, I may come across deals that don't fit uh, the fund's investment parameters. I may spend a lot of time and effort um, working with entrepreneurs who I really believe in, who I think can execute. But I think they're at the end of the day going to build a tremendous quality of life business that throws off a lot of cash but it may never exit with any kind of multiple that makes sense for an early stage startup fund. Um, however, uh, making two X or two and a half X over two or three years might be very interesting to some LPs. So those kinds of deals where I really have a strong belief 
uh, in the ability of the founders to execute, um, but just not to the level required by the fund dynamics. Uh, I, I try to socialize those to the LPs so that uh, they can at least have an opportunity to take advantage of that. And sometimes um, there may be deals where I think an LP might want to add on some of their own money. You know, the fund may be putting in a small amount. Uh, this may be a vertical of interest to a certain LP. So I, I socialize that as well. And that gives them an, another avenue. And sometimes we can negotiate different deals, uh, sorry, different deal terms for, um, for differing, different types of investment. That's great. So, and, and that sort of leads us to, uh, you know, one of my uh, last questions here. Uh, uh, I've got one or two more after this, but um, which is the far, far, far majority of companies out there. I, I'm not even talking about the ones that fail. I'm talking about even the ones that are that are successful, quote unquote, in that they make good living for the founders and they, you know, uh, and they do well on an, on an operating basis uh, are still not fundable companies. There's only a small percentage of companies that are fundable. So, uh, you know, can you give us a little bit on your thoughts on what makes a company fundable? And, uh, you know, frankly, I've seen some companies spend a lot of time chasing money and it's a waste of time for them. They should be focused on growing in the business because they're not fun. You know, they're not the kind of companies that investors are really interested in because they don't have the kind of growth or returns or they're not sexy enough or whatever. So in your view, what makes a company fundable? A company is fundable if it's going to be able to use the cash to achieve some inflection point that dramatically alters the valuation uh, or positions them to dramatically alter the valuation. So um, the obvious easy example is in the uh, med tech space where a company needs financing to get to FDA approval or get to human trials or get to some level of clinical trial where once they get past that stage, there's going to be a three or five times multiple on the underlying valuation. So that, that use of capital, very difficult to get that capital uh, anywhere outside of um, an investment community. You're, you're not in a revenue generating mode when you're doing clinical trials. So that those, those kinds of things must be funded. Um, in the, in the non-medical space, um, often you see companies, they are, they may have a successful business. They may be have a few customers. They're making some money. Um, but they could grow much, much faster. But there would be no way to grow much faster without, without cash. And that's where uh, the due diligence has to happen. You have to be able to demonstrate a wise use of the cash, the ability to do some kind of um, uh, exponential growth with the use of the cash. Those are, those are some of the best kinds of companies to fund if they can be identified. Um, and the important thing from the investor's perspective is to make sure the entrepreneur is raising enough money to get to that inflection point. That's one of the things uh, I see um, being an error quite often in these fundraising uh, rounds by early stage entrepreneurs. Uh, They haven't adequately assessed how much money they'll get. They'll need to get to the next inflection point and no investor wants there to be a follow on round that's down or at the same value or being asked to, to pony up some additional money at the current valuation. So when, when entrepreneurs pitch, uh, and I'm in the room, if they're asking for $300,000, that's kind of a waste of everyone's time because they're just not going to get anywhere $300,000. It's just un- unlikely that they get to any inflection point. And so that's when we try to sit down with the entrepreneur and find out what is the real amount of money they need to get to a meaningful inflection point that will alter the valuation. Uh, and then convince them that that's the amount they should be raising and then help them with introductions um, to maybe other investors, uh, other angel groups, other VCs who can help get them to the right point. And, and the other interesting thing is in those deal structures, as you know, is if uh, they do not raise enough capital and they need more, the investors are most often going to have certain types of protections. You know, they can have ratchet rights or other rights if there's a down round to increase their equity, you know, percentage, uh, 
uh, you know, and, 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 you know, that we could do a whole uh, huge amount of time on those various vehicles. But the, the thing for the listeners to know now is that this could be significant downside, not only the risk of running out of capital, but also uh, the risk of having to give up much more equity, uh, not only, uh, you know, in the next round, but to the original investors, because they probably have some protections in there against down rounds. It's true, though, in practice, and don't tell any entrepreneurs I told you this, um, in practice, it's not to any investor's benefit to cram deal terms down an entrepreneur's throat that's going to make them walk away from the business. So in practice, if more money is needed uh, for whatever reason, um, typically the investors find a way to make it palatable to the entrepreneur because without the entrepreneur, there's, uh, you know, the investment goes to zero. No, no, no question about that. That's the practical leverage that the, that the, uh, you know, the entrepreneur has. And uh, listen, uh, practical leverage uh, and uh, makes a, a big difference no matter what's written into the deal terms. Uh, so I 100% agree with you. Although I have seen situations where, I mean, we had a client many years ago where, uh, and uh, it was mainly because they were moving into, this is, you'll laugh at this because it was, uh, their business started pre-internet. It was, I won't go into details, it was an information services, uh, you know, providing information. And when uh, they were smart enough to understand when the internet came in that they, uh, that, you know, their business was going to have to go all online because that's where information was going to go. And the VC firm they were working with was not investing in internet companies at that time. And, uh, and they couldn't raise additional capital from them and actually had to negotiate a, uh, a deal with them to uh, reduce their interest and go find capital elsewhere, which we were able to do. But you're right. Practically, in, in most cases, you know, it's, it's not in the interest of the, uh, of the investors to, uh, you know, to, to put the company out of business because, of course, then their investment's going to be gone. And this is where I think having a frank discussion with the entrepreneur around governance, um, which is a topic that many investors don't want to have or don't want to discuss with entrepreneurs, is really important because a lot of the mistakes and a lot of the problems problems that lead you to uh, raising, having to raise more money in an unexpected manner come down to potentially mistakes that could have been avoided if the, if the grayer heads uh, who've invested money and who have maybe some, some wise experience can at least provide some oversight or some thinking into what's happening. We had a, we had a deal come across us. We did a lot of due diligence on it. Um, brilliant, brilliant entrepreneur, great team, tremendous advisors. They'd raised a whole bunch of money. They had partnered with uh, some great publishing houses. Uh, they had access to 60 million unique views a month. Um, and they, they went through the initial round and they were raising some more money. And they spent all that money uh, to develop their software, get it deployed on all these uh, publishing houses' websites. And they were demonstrating the fact that they'd had all these downloads of their widget. Wow, you know, they've proven out their business model. And we said, what did you charge to have them download the widget? Like, oh, we, this is just a test. We let them download for free. I'm like, so all you did was spend $800,000 proving people will download widgets for free. You never proved out your business model, which required you to charge something for it. And, and their eyes got very big in the meeting. And it, for us, we're like, well, we're not putting more money into this. You've just spent all this money. And you've done nothing effectively except, you know, I mean, was, they did a great job creating the relationships, building a board. They did all these things. And then... They completely dropped the ball on doing the one thing they were trying to do, which is proving their business model. Yeah, and it's uh, and it's interesting because listen, we love the enthusiasm and the uh, excitement and the brilliance of new ideas and uh, you know of, of uh, young entrepreneurs and 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 when I say young, I don't that's not necessarily an age comment, but you know newer entrepreneurs. And at the same time, there are some very fundamental things uh, that investors look for that sometimes they're you know this is a great example that they're not really. Uh, as present to as they should be. 
Right. And if the board, which was, they had a pretty good board, had paid Bain more attention, I think that would have happened. Yeah. 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 Definitely rely upon, you know, if, you, if you're fortunate enough to build a great board with experience, you want to rely upon them and, and uh, you know, get their input. So that's great. So, uh, Peter, I, I'm going to have a final question for you. But before we do that, um, uh, what's the best place, you know, if people want to find out more about you and uh, what you do or reach out to you, connect with you in some way, what's the best way to do that? I'd say up until a year ago, going to our company's website, www.tgix.com would have been the ideal way. But um, LinkedIn right now is probably the best way, uh, only because I'm doing a number of different things. And that, that's one place that summarized them all quite well. That's great. So it's, it's, uh, it's Peter. Just look up uh, Peter Dolch on LinkedIn. And, 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 and listen, Fueling Deals listeners, as you can tell, Peter's just a, a phenomenal entrepreneur and a wealth of knowledge. And, uh, you know, and I've seen what he's built and grown over, over the years, uh, really, really, frankly, from nothing, uh, you know, in the beginning. Uh, you know, I was uh, uh, involved with him in, in, in the early stages. And I remember, uh, uh, you know, I remember them uh, starting this thing up. So, uh, you know, he's really, really impressive. And, uh, and uh, I'm excited to see what he's going to be doing and investing in the future. Uh, Super smart guy, so um, you know definitely uh, uh, definitely check him out. Um, so, Peter, my final question is: um, so I, I'm a big believer. One of my core things that I believe in in business is authenticity, and it's uh, it's not you know just integrity and doing the right thing, but it's more sort of making decisions that are aligned, that are authentic to who we are as human beings, that are aligned with our vision and values, that you know uh, uh, just uh, you know align with our inner truth. And you're somebody that I personally know has uh, always had a, uh, you know, a very clear vision for the, for the business. I remember when TGIC started, you did, and, and even the way you've expressed uh, the way uh, Eon Foundry, you know, and the way you approach that, uh, you know, it's clear to me that, uh, that that's important to you. So I'm wondering how, you know, when you are evaluating deals or even businesses to go into, um, you know, what do you do to make sure that they're aligned with, uh, you know, that they're authentic to you, uh, that, that you're not going off in a way that's not aligned with, uh, you know, with what you're about? So it's a little bit of a challenging question only because uh, the authenticity around me may need to take a slight backseat to my fiduciary responsibility to the fund. So in a perfect world, I would only invest in, in entrepreneurs at which I'm passionate about what they're doing. Um, and I believe in their mission. Um, but that obviously doesn't mean I shouldn't make a, a good investment that I see even if I'm not 100% aligned with, um, you know, doesn't it's not necessarily something about the social good that I prefer to be involved in. Um, that said, I think there is a pretty good alignment in general because you know, passionate entrepreneurs uh, are are good for the fund, um, and that's really what what works for me in terms of initial the initial foray into into a potential deal. Well. It- Peter, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I really uh, enjoyed having you here. Corey, I really enjoyed having this chat. Uh, I didn't get a chance to say thank you about two questions ago when you said some very nice things about me, so let me say thank you now. I've also, I've also really enjoyed, by the way, working with you uh, over the years. I remember when uh, it was you and, and two other lawyers in a, in a small office, um, and uh, we got some tremendous quality uh, personal attention from you when we were starting our company, and I used you for many years as an example of of how professional services firms should work with their uh, clients. You were, you were one of my, uh, my heroes there. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Oh, th- thanks so much. Yeah, I sort of feel like we've grown up together in business. In a lot of ways, <laughs> which, is, you know, which is very cool. It's very cool. Um, so, so great. Thanks again, Peter. Uh, and thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there is only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. 
and it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. It's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth. 